are listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. Sapphire Planet. In camp at Kill Devil's Hill, the Wright brothers. Orville and Wilbur endured weeks of delays caused by broken propeller shafts during engine tests. After the shafts were replaced, requiring two trips back to Dayton, Wilbur won a coin toss and made the three-second flight attempt on December 14, 1903 stalling after takeoff and causing minor damage to the flyer. Because December 13, 1903 was a Sunday, the brothers did not make any attempts that day, even though the weather was good. In a message to their family, Wilbur referred to the trial as having only partial success stating, the power is ample, and but for a trifling error due to lack of experience with this machine and this method of starting, the machine would undoubtedly have flown beautifully. Following repairs, the Wrights finally took to the air on December 17, 1903, making two flights each from level ground onto a freezing headwind gusting to 27 miles per hour. The first flight by Orville at 10.35 a.m. of 120 feet in 12 seconds at a speed of 6.8 miles per hour over the ground was recorded in a famous photograph. 
The next two flights covered approximately 175 feet and 200 feet respectively by Wilbur and Orville. Their altitude was about 10 feet above the ground. The following is Orville Wright's account of the final flight of the day. Wilbur started the fourth and last flight at just about 12 o'clock. The first few hundred feet were up and down, as before, but by the time 300 feet had been covered, the machine was under much better control. The course for the next four or five hundred feet had but little undulation. However, when about 800 feet the machine began pitching again and one of its darts downward struck the ground. The distance over the ground was measured to be 852 feet. The time of the flight was 59 seconds. The frame supporting the front rudder was badly broken, but the main part of the machine was not injured at all. We estimated that the machine could be put in condition for flight again in about a day or two. Five people witnessed the flights. Adam Etheridge, John T. Daniels, who, by the way, snapped the famous first flight photo using Orville's pre-positioned camera, and Will Doe, all of the U.S. government's coastal life-saving crew. Area businessmen W.C. Brinkley and Johnny Moore, a teenage boy who lived in the area, also watched the flight. After the men hauled the flyer back from its fourth flight, a powerful gust of wind flipped it over several times, despite the crew's attempts to hold it down. Severely damaged, the airplane never flew again. The brothers shipped it home, and years later Orville restored it, lending it to several U.S. locations for display, then to a British museum, before it was finally installed in the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. in the year 1948, where it currently resides today. The Wrights sent a telegram about the flights to their father, requesting that he inform press. However, the Dayton Journal refused to publish the story, saying the flights were too short to be important. Meanwhile, against the brothers' wishes, a telegraph operator leaked their message to a Virginia newspaper, which concocted a highly inaccurate news article that was reprinted the next day in several newspapers elsewhere, including Dayton. The Wrights issued their own factual statement to the press in January. Nevertheless, the flights did not create public excitement. Even people even knew about them, and the news soon faded. In Paris, however, Aero Club of France members, already stimulated by Chatney's reports of Wright's gliding successes, took the news more seriously and increased their efforts to catch up to the brothers. In 1904, the Wrights built the Flyer II. 
they decided to avoid the expense of travel and bring supplies to the Outer Banks and set up an airfield at Huffman Prairie, a cow pasture eight miles northeast of Dayton. They received permission to use the field rent-free from the owner and bank president, Torrance Huffman. They invited reporters to their first flight attempt of the year on May 23rd on the condition that no photographs be taken. Engine troubles and slack winds prevented any flying and they could manage only very short hop a few days later with fewer reporters present. Some scholars of the Wrights speculate the brothers may have intentionally failed to fly in order to cause reporters to lose interest in their experiments. Whether that is true is not known. But after their poor showing, local newspapers virtually ignored them for the next year and a half. The Wrights were glad to be free from the distraction of reporters. The absence of newsmen also reduced the chance of competitors learning about their methods. After the Kitty Hawk powered flights, the Wrights made a decision to begin withdrawing from the bicycle business so they could vote, devote themselves to creating and marketing a practical airplane. The decision was financially risky since they were neither wealthy nor government funded. Unlike other experimenters such as Adder, Maxim, Langley, and Santos Dermont, the Wright brothers did not have the luxury of giving away their invention. It was to be their livelihood. Thus, their secrecy intensified. Encouraged by the advice from their patent attorney, Henry Tolman, not to reveal details of their machine. At Huffman Prairie, lighter winds and lower air density than in Kitty Hawk because of Ohio's higher altitude and higher temperatures made takeoffs very difficult and they had to use a much longer starting rail stretching to hundreds of feet compared to the 60-foot rail at Kitty Hawk. During the spring and summer they suffered many hard landings, real crack-ups, repeated flyer damage, and bodily bumps and bruises. On August 13th, making an unassisted takeoff, Wilbur finally exceeded their best Kitty Hawk effort with a flight of 1,300 feet or 400 meters. They decided to use a weight-powered catapult to make takeoffs easier and tried it for the first time on September 7th. On September 20th, 1904, Wilbur flew the first complete circle in history by a manned, heavier-than-air powered machine covering 4,080 feet in about a minute and a half. Their two best flights were November 9th by Wilbur and December 1st by Orville each exceeding five minutes and covering nearly three miles in almost four circles. By the end of the year, 
The brothers had accumulated about 50 minutes in the air in 105 flights over the rather soggy 85-acre pasture, which, remarkably, is virtually unchanged today from its original condition and is now part of Dayton Aviation Heritage National Historical Park, adjacent to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Towards the end of 1904 in September, the brothers were visited by the first of many important Europeans. They could be befriended in coming years. This distinguished British Colonel, J.E. Capper, who was interested in the success of aeronautics in the behest of his island nation. Capper and his wife were arriving in the United States aboard the Lucania and would be headed towards the big fair in St. Louis that fall. He cabled the rights from the ship for a meeting. The rights patent was granted at its earliest in 1904 in Britain, hence the interest from important people like Capper. Despite progress in 1904, the flyer was still frequently out of control. The Wrights scrapped the battered and much repaired airplane, but saved the engine, and in 1905 built a new Flyer 3, which included an important design change. The brothers installed a separate control for the rear rudder instead of linking the rudder to the wing-warping cradle as before. Each of the three axes pitch, roll, and yaw now had its own independent control. Nevertheless, this flyer offered the same marginal performance as the first two. Its maiden flight was June 23rd, and the first several flights were no longer than 10 seconds. After Orville suffered a bone-jarring and potentially fatal crash on July 14th, they rebuilt the flyer with the forward elevator and rear rudder both enlarged and placed several feet farther away from the wings. These modifications greatly improved stability and control, setting the stage for a series of six dramatic long flights ranging from 17 to 38 minutes and 11 to 24 miles around the three-quarter mile course over Huffman Prairie between September 26th and October 5th. Wilbur made the last and longest flight at 24 and a half miles in 38 minutes and 3 seconds, ending with a safe landing when the fuel ran out. The flight was seen by a number of people, including several invited friends, their father Milton, and neighboring farmers. Reporters showed up the next day, only their second appearance at the field since May the previous year. But the brothers declined to fly. The long flights convinced the Wrights that they had achieved their goal of creating a flying machine of practical utility 
which they could offer to sell. The only photos of the flights of 1904 through 1905 were taken by the brothers. A few of those photos were damaged in the Great Dayton Flood of 1913, but most survived intact. In 1904, Ohio beekeeping businessman Amos Root, a technology enthusiast, saw a few flights, including the first circle. Articles he wrote for his beekeeping magazine were the only published eyewitness reports of the Huffman Prairie flights, except for the unimpressive early hop local newsmen saw. Root offered a report to Scientific American magazine, but the editor turned it down. As a result, the news was not widely known outside of Ohio and was often met with the skepticism. The Paris edition of the Herald Tribune headlined a 1906 article on the rights. The headline read, Flyers or Liars? In the years to come, Dayton newspapers would proudly celebrate the hometown Wright brothers as national heroes. But the local reporters somehow missed one of the most important stories in history as it was happening a few miles away from their doorsteps. James M. Cox, publisher at that time of the Dayton Daily News, he later went on to become the governor of Ohio and Democratic presidential nominee in 1920, expressed the attitude of newspaper men and the public in those days when he admitted years later, frankly, None of us believed it. A few newspapers published articles about the long flights, but no reporters or photographers had been there. The lack of splashy eyewitness press coverage was a major reason for disbelief in Washington, D.C., and Europe, and in journals like Scientific American, whose editors doubted the alleged experiments and asked how U.S. newspapers, alert as they are, allowed these sensational performances to escape their notice. The Wright brothers were certainly complicit in the lack of attention they received. Fearful of competitors stealing their ideas, and still without a patent, they flew on only one more day after October 5th. From then on, they refused to fly anywhere unless they had a firm contract to sell their aircraft. They wrote to the U.S. government, then to Britain, France, and Germany, with an offer to sell a flying machine, but were rebuffed because they insisted on a signed contract before giving a demonstration. They were unwilling even to show their photographs of the airborne flyer. The American military, having recently spent $50,000 on the Langley Aerodrome, a product of the nation's foremost scientist, only to see it plunge twice into the Potomac River like a handful of mortar, 
was particularly unreceptive to the claims of two unknown bicycle makers from Ohio. Thus doubted or scorned, the Wright brothers continued their work in semi-obscurity, while other aviation pioneers like Santos Dumont, Henry Farman, Leon Delange, and American Glenn Curtis entered the limelight. In 1906, skeptics in the European aviation community had converted the press to the anti-Wright brothers' stance. European newspapers, especially in France, were openly derisive, calling them bluffeurs, or in English, bluffers. Ernest Archdeacon, founder of the Aero Club de France, was publicly scornful of the brothers' claims in spite of published reports. Specifically, he wrote several articles and, in 1906, stated that the French would make the first public demonstration of powered flight. The Paris edition of the New York Herald summed up Europe's opinion of the Wright brothers in an editorial dated February 10th, 1906. The Wrights have flown or they have not flown. They possess a machine or they do not possess one. They are in fact either flyers or liars. It is difficult to fly. It is easy to say, we have flown. In 1908, after the Wrights' first flights in France, Archdeacon publicly admitted that he had done them an injustice. The Wright brothers made no flights at all in 1906 and 1907. They spent the time attempting to persuade the U.S. and European governments that they had invented a successful flying machine and were prepared to negotiate a contract to sell such machines. They also experimented with a pontoon, an engine set up on the Miami River in Ohio, in hopes of flying their airplane from water. These experiments proved unsuccessful. Replying to the Wright's letters, the U.S. military expressed virtually no interest in their claims. The brothers turned their attention to Europe especially France, where enthusiasm for aviation ran high, and journeyed there for the first time in 1907 for face-to-face -face talks with government officials and businessmen. They also met with aviation representatives in Germany and Britain. Before traveling, Orville shipped a newly built Model A flyer to France in anticipation of demonstration flights. In France, Wilbur met Frank P. Laham, a lieutenant in the U.S. Army Aeronautical Division. Writing to his superiors, Laham soon smoothed the way for Wilbur to give an in-person presentation to the U.S. Board of Ordnance and Fortification in Washington, D.C. When he returned to the U.S., 
This time, the board was favorably impressed, in contrast to its previous indifference. With further input from the Wrights, the U.S. Army Signal Corps issued specification number 486 in December 1907, inviting bids for constructions of an airplane under military contract. The Wrights submitted their bid on January in early 1908. The brothers also agreed to a contract with a French company. In May, they went back to Kitty Hawk with their 1908 flyer to practice in private for their all-important public demonstration flights as required by both contracts. Their privacy was lost when New York newspapers heard about the tests and sent several porters to the scene. Their contracts required with them to fly with a passenger, so they modified the 1905 flyer by installing two seats and adding upright control levers. After tests with sandbags in the passenger seat, Charlie Furness, a helper from Dayton, became the first fixed-wing aircraft passenger on a few short flights on May 14th. For safety, and as a promise to their father, Wilbur and Orville did not fly together. However, several newspaper accounts at the time mistakenly took Orville's flight with Furness as both brothers flying together. Later that day, after flying solo seven minutes, Wilbur suffered his worst crash ever when still not well acquainted with the new two control levers he apparently moved one the wrong way and slammed the flyer into the sand at between 40 and 50 miles per hour he emerged with only bruises and a cut nose but the accident ended the practice flights and the aircraft's flying career. On October 1911, Orville Wright returned from the Outer Banks again to improve the aircraft and conduct tests for safety and stabilization with a new glider. On October 24th, he soared for 9 minutes and 45 seconds, a record that held for almost 10 years when gliding as a sport began in the 1920s. The brothers, contract with the U.S. Army and a French syndicate, depend on a successful public flight demonstrations that met certain conditions. The brothers had divided their effort. Wilbur sailed for Europe. Orville would fl fly near Washington, D.C. Facing a lot of skepticism in the French aeronautical community and outright scorn by some newspapers that called him a bluffeur, Wilbur began official public demonstrations on August 8, 1908 at the Honenderis horse racing track near the town of Le Mans, France. His first flight lasted only 1 minute 45 seconds but his ability to effortlessly make banking turns and fly a circle 
amazed the stunned onlookers, including several pioneer French aviators, among them Louis Bleroy. In the following days, Wilbur made a series of technically challenging flights, including figure eights, demonstrating his skill as a pilot and the capability of his flying machine, which far surpassed those of all other pioneering airplanes and pilots of that day. The French public was thrilled by Wilbur's feats and flocked to the field by the thousands. The Wright brothers catapulted to the world fame overnight. Former doubters issued apologies and effusive praise. Le aerophile editor Georges Biscon wrote that the flights have completely dissipated all doubts. Not one of the former detractors of the Wrights dare question today the previous experiments of the men who were truly the first to fly. Leading French aviation promoter Ernest Archdeacon wrote, For the long time, the Wright brothers have been accused in Europe of bluff. They are today hallowed in France, and I feel intense pleasure to make amends. On October 7, 1908, Edith Berg, the wife of the brothers' European business agent, became the first American woman passenger when she flew with Wilbur, one of the many passengers who rode with him that autumn. Wilbur also became acquainted with Leon Biolet and his family. Biolet was the owner of an automobile factory where Wilbur would assemble the flyer and where he would be provided with hired assistance. Biolet would fly that autumn with Wilbur. Madame Bollet had been in the latter stages of pregnancy when Wilbur arrived in Le Mans in June 1908 to assemble the flyer. Wilbur promised her that he would make his first European flight the day her baby was born, which he did, August 8, 1908. Orville followed his brother's success by demonstrating another nearly identical flyer to the United States Army at Fort Myer, Virginia, starting on September 3, 1908. On September 9, he made the first hour-long flight, lasting 62 minutes and 15 seconds. On September 17, Army Lieutenant Thomas Selfridge rode along as his passenger, serving as official observer. A few minutes into the flight, at an altitude of about a hundred feet, a propeller split and shattered, sending the aircraft out of control. Selfridge suffered a fractured skull in the crash and died that evening in the nearby Army Hospital, becoming the first, plane, first airplane crash fatality. Orville was badly injured, suffering a broken left leg and four broken ribs. Twelve years later, after he suffered increasingly severe pains, X-ray revealed that the accident 
had also caused three hip bone fractures and a dislocated hip. The brother's sister, Catherine, a school teacher, rushed from Dayton to Virginia and stayed by Orville's side for the seven weeks of his hospitalization. She helped negotiate a one-year extension of the Army contract. A friend visiting Orville in the hospital asked, Has it got your nerve? Nerve, repeated Orville, slightly puzzled. Oh, do you mean will I be afraid to fly again? The only thing I am afraid of is that I can't get well soon enough to finish those tests next year. Deeply shocked by the accident, Wilbur determined to make even more impressive flight demonstrations. In the ensuing days and weeks, he set new records for altitude and duration. In January 1909, Orville and Catherine joined him in France, and for a time, they were the three most famous people in the world, sought after by royalty, the rich, reporters, and the public. The kings of England and Spain and Italy came to see Wilbur fly. The Wrights traveled to Pau in the south of France, where Wilbur made many more public flights, giving rise to a procession of officers, journalists, and statesmen, and his sister Catherine on February 15th. He trained two French pilots, then transferred the airplane to a French company. In April, the Wrights went to Italy, where Wilbur assembled another flyer, giving demonstrations and training more pilots. An Italian cameraman, Federico Valle, climbed aboard and filmed the first motion picture from an aircraft. After their return to the U.S., the brothers and Catherine were invited to the White House, where President Taft bestowed awards upon them. Dayton followed up with lavish two-day homecoming celebrations. In July 1909, Orville, with Wilbur assisting, completed the proving flights for the U.S. Army, meeting the requirements of a two-seater able to fly with a passenger for an hour at the average speed of 40 miles an hour and land undamaged. They sold the aircraft to the Army's Aeronautical Division, U.S. Signal Corps, for $30,000 which included a $5,000 bonus for exceeding the speed specification. Wilbur climaxed an extraordinary year in October when he flew at New York City's Hudson Fulton celebrations, circling the Statue of Liberty and making a 33-minute flight up and down the Hudson River along Manhattan in view of up to one million New Yorkers. These flights solidly established the fame of the Wright Brothers in America. On May 25, 1910, back at Huffman Prairie, Orville piloted two unique flights. First, he took off on a six-minute flight with Wilbur as his passenger, the only time the Wright Brothers ever flew together. They received permission from their father to make the flight. They had always promised Milton they would never fly together to avoid the chance of a double tragedy and to ensure one brother would remain 
to continue the experiments. Next, Orville took his 82-year-old father on a nearly seven-minute flight, the only one of Milton Wright's life. The airplane rose to about 350 feet while the elderly Wright called to his son, Higher, Orville! Higher! The Wright brothers wrote their 1903 patent application themselves, but it was rejected in January 1904. They hired Ohio patent attorney Henry Toulman, and on May 22, 1906, they were granted U.S. patent number 821393 for a new and useful improvements in flying machines. The patent illustrates a non-powered flying machine, namely the 1902 glider. The patent's importance lies in its claim of new and useful method of controlling a flying machine, powered or not. The technique of wing warping is described, but the patent explicitly states that other methods instead of wing warping could be used for adjusting the outer portions of the wings to different angles on the right and left sides to achieve lateral roll control. The concept of varying the angle presented to the air near the wingtips by any suitable method is central to the patent. The patent also describes the steerable rear vertical rudder and its innovation use in combination with wing warping, enabling the airplane to make a coordinated turn. A technique prevents hazardous adverse yaw the problem Wilbur had when trying to turn the 1901 glider. Finally, the patent describes the forward elevator used for ascending and descending. Attempting to circumvent the patent, Glenn Curtis and other early aviators devised ailerons to emulate lateral control described in the patent and demonstrated by the Wrights in their first public flights. Soon, after the historic 4th of July 1908, one kilometer flight by Curtis in the AEA Junebug, the Wrights warned him not to infringe their patent by profiting from flying or selling aircraft that use ailerons. Curtis was at the time a member of the Aerial Experiment Association. AEA, headed by Alexander Graham Bell, where, in 1908, he had helped reinvent wingtip ailerons for their Aerodome No. 2, known as the AEA White Wing. The AEA's other members became dismayed when Curtis unexpectedly dropped out of their organization. They later came to believe he had sold the rights to their joint innovation to the United States government. Curtis refused to pay license fees to the Wrights and sold an aircraft equipped with ailerons to the Aeronautic Society of New York in 1909. The Wrights filed a lawsuit beginning a years-long legal conflict. They also sued foreign aviators who flew at U.S. exhibitions, including their leading French aviator, Louis 
Kohan. The Curtis people derisively suggested that if someone jumped in the air and waved his arms, the rights would sue them. European companies, which bought foreign patents from the rights, had received sued other manufacturers in their countries. These lawsuits were only partially successful. Despite a pro-right ruling in France, legal maneuvering dragged on until the patent expired in 1917. A German court ruled the patent could not be valid because of prior disclosure in speeches by Wilbur Wright in 1901 and Octave Chante in 1903. In the U.S., the Wrights made an agreement with the Aero Club of America to license air shows, which the club approved, freeing participating pilots from a legal threat. Promoters of approved shows paid fees to the Wrights. The Wright brothers won their initial case against Curtis in February 1913, when a judge ruled that ailerons were covered under this patent. The Curtis Company appealed the decision. From 1910 until his death from typhoid fever in 1912, Wilbur took the leading role in the patent struggle, traveling incessantly to consult with lawyers and testify in what he felt was a moral cause, particularly against Curtis, who was creating a large company to manufacture aircraft. The Wright's preoccupation with the legal issue stifled their work on new designs and by 1911, Wright aircraft were considered inferior to those of European makers. Indeed, aviation development in the U.S. was suppressed to such an extent that when the U.S. entered World War I, no acceptable American-designed aircraft were available, and U.S. forces were compelled to use French machines. Orville and Catherine Wright believed Curtis was partially responsible for Wilbur's premature death, which occurred in the wake of his exhausting travels and the stress of the legal battle. In January 1914, a U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the verdict against the Curtis Company, which continued to avoid penalties through legal tactics. Orville apparently felt vindicated by the decision and much to the frustration of the company executives, he did not push vigorously for further legal action to ensure a manufacturing monopoly. In fact, he was planning to sell the company and departed in 1915. In 1917, with World War I underway, and the U.S. government pressured the industry to form a cross-licensing organization, the Manufacturers Aircraft Association, to which member companies paid a blanket fee for the use of aviation patents, including the original and subsequent Wright patents. The Wright-Martin Company, successor, successor to the Wright Company, and the Curtis Company, which held a number of its own patents, each received a $2 million payment. The patent war ended, although side issues lingered in the courts until the 1920s. In a twist of irony, the Wright Aeronautic Corporation, another successor, and Curtis Aeroplanes Company merged in 1929 to form the Curtis Wright Corporation, which remains in business today 
producing high-tech components for the aerospace industry. Aviation Historians states a number of times that the Wright brothers' legal victory would have been doubtful if a 1968 patent of prior but lost inventions by Matthew Pierce Watt Bolton of the United Kingdom had been known in this period of 1903 through 1906. The lengthy patent and drawing sheet titled Aerial Locomotion, etc., described several engine improvements and conceptual designs and then offered, almost in passing, a complete technical description and drawings of an aileron control system, including an optional feature intended to function as a single-axis autopilot. The lawsuits damaged the public image of the rights, who were generally regarded before this as heroes. Critics said the brothers were greedy and unfair and compared their actions unfavorably to European inventors who worked more openly. Supporters said the brothers were protecting their interests and were justified in inspecting, expecting fair compensation for the years of hard work leading to their successful invention. Their 10-year friendship with Octane Chante, already strained by tensions over how much credit, if any, he might deserve for their success, collapsed after he publicly criticized their actions. The Wright Company was incorporated on November 22, 1909. The brothers sold their patents to the company for 100000 and also received one-third of the shares in a million-dollar stock issue and a 10% royalty on every airplane sold. With Wilbur as president and Orville as vice president, the company set up a factory in Dayton and a flying school test flight field at Huffman Prairie. The headquarters office was in 19 is was in New York City. In the mid 1910s, the Wrights changed the design of the Wright Flyer, moving the horizontal elevator to the front to the back, and adding wheels, although keeping the skids as part of the undercarriage unit. It had become apparent by then that a rear elevator would make the airplane easier to control, especially as higher speeds grew more common. This aircraft was designed the, designated the Model B, although the original canard design was never return, referred to as the Model A by the Wrights. However, the U.S. Signal Corps, which bought the aircraft, did call it Wright Type A. Neither of the Wright brothers ever married. Wilbur once quipped that he did not have time for both a wife and an airplane. He became ill on a business trip to Boston in April 1912. The illness sometimes attributed to eating bad self shellfish at a banquet. After returning to Dayton, he was diagnosed with typhoid fever. He lingered in and out of consciousness for several weeks until he died at age 45 at the Wright's family home on May 30th. His father Milton wrote about Wilbur in his diary, a short life 
full a consequence. An unfailing intellect, imperturbable temper, great self-reliance, and as great modesty, seeing the right clearly, pursuing it steadfastly, he lived and died. Orville succeeded to the presidency of the Wright Company upon Wilbur's death, sharing Wilbur's distaste for business, but not his brother's executive skills. Orville sold the company in 1915. He and his sister Catherine and their father Milton moved to a mansion in Hawthorne Hill, Oakwood, Ohio, which the new wealthy family built. His father Milton died in his sleep in 1917. Orville made his last flight as a pilot in 1918 in a 1911 Model B. He retired from business and became an elder statesman of aviation, serving on various official boards and committees, including the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, predecessor to the agency National Aeronautics and Space Administration, which you know as NASA, and the Aeronautical Chamber of Commerce, predecessor to the Aerospace Industries Association, otherwise known as AIA. Their sister Catherine married Henry Haskell of Kansas City, a former Orberlin classmate in 1926, which greatly upset Orville. He refused to attend the wedding or even communicate with her. He finally agreed to see her, apparently at Lauren's assistance just before she died of pneumonia in 1929. Orville died on January 13, 1948, after his second heart attack, having lived from the horse and buggy age to the dawn of supersonic flight. He was followed a day later by John T. Daniels, the Coast Guardman who took their famous first flight photo. Both brothers are buried at the family plot at the Woodland Cemetery in Dayton, Ohio. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet.